Let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word, the Bible. We pray you would help us understand it, to receive its truth with faith and love laid up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, verse 47. Luke 22, verses 47 through 53. Luke 22, verses 47 through 53 is our scripture reading and sermon text for this morning. Luke 22, 47 through 53. This is God's word. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. May God bless the reading of his holy word. The Gospel of John is filled with a lot of information about Jesus' life and ministry, miracles, and especially his final hours before his crucifixion that are extremely helpful to help to kind of fill out the details of what all was happening here. I want you to notice the last phrase of verse 53. You see it, the last phrase of the whole passage. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours, he says. This was their hour now. This was the time when Jesus' enemies would finally have their way. Their hatred of Jesus has been on full display in countless ways throughout the Gospels that we've seen even just in Luke's Gospel. They tried their best to get Jesus in trouble with everyone, everyone possible. They wanted to get someone else to do their dirty work for them. They asked him questions in an attempt to make him lose credibility with the populace, to get him in legal trouble with Rome. They conspired to kill him. They wanted to hurt him. They they wanted to murder him. But all their efforts were held back by the almighty hand of God. And John chapter 8 verse 20 tells us exactly why. That passage says, And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Along with his desperate cries in Gethsemane to Uh, let this cup pass from him, the cup of wrath to pass from him, if possible. Jesus, we know, also prayed his great high priestly prayer. It's the last thing recorded in the Gospel of John before he's arrested. So we have a window into some of the things that he actually prayed in Gethsemane while he was sweating blood. And that prayer begins with the phrase in John 17, Father, the hour has come. The time is now. Now is the hour and the power of darkness. It had finally come. The restraints upon Jesus' enemies would be loosened, but not entirely. Jesus is just as much in control of every single event, thought, motive, and movement of everyone involved in this as he always has been. 
And we've already seen many times that the specific details of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, his miracles, his preaching of the gospel, his liberating people from sin, how, and now his betrayal by a close friend, and later the specific form of death that he would endure, a Roman crucifixion instead of a Jewish stoning, all of that was under the complete control of God. Indeed, it had been prophesied by God. I want to make a point of application that really came home to me as I was plowing through this passage once again. Our own lives are just as much in the hands of Almighty God when we suffer as when we prosper. If the wicked are given time to do what they do, it will be their hour. But every season of the wicked will come to an end in this life or in the end. Either way, there is absolute sovereign control by God over them, over the darkness, over those that are the agents of darkness. Now, it's easier for me to say all that, uh, having never been imprisoned, tortured, or tied to a stake to be burned to death, as many of our Christian family who went before us were. But this truth of the Lord's control is at the heart of this passage. It's at the heart of the passage. Evil people who despise the Lord, despise the truth, despise God's people, they'll have their moments when they're able to hurt Christ's sheep. And they'll have their moments when they're able to do damage to the Lord and to the church. But they're always under God's sovereign control. The hour of darkness is granted by the sovereign Lord in his time. Satan and his demons, Satan's human agents, and Satan's ministers always are working in their chains. They're never let free from their chains that God has them in. And this truth is brought home to us in many ways throughout Scripture. Many ways. Satan could not touch a hair on Job's head without asking and then being granted divine permission. When the Lord's purposes had been achieved with Job, after Job had lost everything and was, was taken as low as a human being can possibly be brought in life, that beautiful, impenetrable wall of divine protection was put back up. And Satan was kept away from Job for the rest of his life. But we must not forget in that wonderful narrative of Job's life, his trials and his restoration, that it had been the Lord's will. Had it been the Lord's will that Job died of a disease or that Job died because he was so heartbroken, he would have still been obligated to love, trust, obey, and rejoice in God, his Savior, as much then as he did in those prosperous years at the end of his life. Satan apparently took the time to ask. He took the time to ask Jesus, I want to shake Peter. In fact, I want to shake all of them. I want to sift them like wheat. I want to shake them all violently. And thankfully, Jesus, although he does give him permission to do that, he says, yeah, Peter, Satan asked for you. He wants to shake you violently, but I've prayed for you. So that after you fail, after you do a face plant, I'm going to raise you up and do great things with you. And I want you to strengthen your brethren. Sometimes God restrains the hands of the wicked. Other times he lets them hurt us. Sometimes God protects us from harm, other times he doesn't. It's all part of his sovereign and praiseworthy plan to do what? To glorify himself. God delivered Paul, we know. God delivered Paul because Paul said it. From the mouth of a lion, God delivered Paul from the plots of the Jews. God delivered Paul from prison, from harm over and over again. But eventually, God allowed Paul to be beheaded. Is that part of the plan? Was that like, whoops, I forgot to protect him there? Of course not. God delivered Peter and the other apostles from plots to kill them. Eventually, however, God's plan, his sovereign decree to glorify himself was that all of those men would die horrifying deaths. All of them did. 
Jesus even told Peter, John 21, 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk where you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And we know from tradition, Peter was what? He was crucified upside down. God lifted his divine hand of restraint on Joseph's brothers. Remember Joseph's brothers? Remember what their original plan was? Kill him. We want to kill our brother. And God held them back from it. Instead, he was sold off into a life of slavery and suffering for many years at his brother's hands instead. But in the plan of God, Jesus was protected by his father until this moment right here in the text. Make no mistake about it. God the father has engaged in a lot of restraint, protecting his son from the gnashed teeth and the visceral hatred of men against him. From the time that Jesus was conceived, from the time the Redeemer of the world, the Savior of the world, was in Mary's womb, people were trying to kill him. He was hunted and hated. Herod, just to be safe, remember he orders the death of every male child two years old and under in the entire vicinity. And the wailing of those mothers as they cried out over their dead little boys, that, that itself is prophesied as something that was going to happen. Rachel weeping for her children, remember that? All the expressions of hatred toward Christ, toward the truth, towards true righteousness, and even toward the church in America today. They're all decreed by God and controlled by him. If Judas had come with only one guard, one soldier, or one chief priest, would Jesus still have been arrested and brought to trial and condemned, crucified, etc.? Yeah, of course. Evil will have its hour, and like absolutely everything else that comes to pass, it serves God's purposes and only God's purposes. No matter what happens, no matter what it is, it always serves God's purposes. And this morning, I want you to see three primary things in this passage. I've given you an outline there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along that way. Point number one, pure wickedness illustrated there by Judas, verse 47 and 48. And then verse 49 to 51, what real service to Christ looks like. And then evil's hour, verses 52 and 53. So let's look back at the passage. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. Okay, stop there. After Judas ate at the table with Jesus and his disciples, he went out immediately, and it was night, we're told in John 13, verse 30. He obviously hurried off to the chief priests, and Jesus' enemies believed strongly uh, that their plot against him had to be done when? Secretly, at night, away from the crowds. They were afraid that if they tried to arrest him or kill him in front of everybody, that all the people would turn on them. So this has got to be done covertly at night. So here's the opportune time. The opportune time has come for Judas to finally get his 30 pieces of silver. And it's interesting to note here that when Judas left them, they're all still in the upper room of the house. Not in the Garden of, uh, or not in the garden of Gethsemane just yet. And apparently that was a place that they went quite often. And Judas must have been really confident that that's where they were going to go. Now notice in verse 47, the way that Judas is referred to, this is very significant. It's not just they said, it says Judas was preceding them. You see what it says there? Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them. Now why would Luke add that? Why does the Holy Spirit have Luke add that to the narration here? You think the people reading this don't realize who Judas is? Of course we know who Judas is. They were just talking to him a little bit ago in the narrative. 
because it is so shocking and upsetting that Judas would do this. He's not some random guy. He's not just a random friend of Jesus or a person they recently met or a general sympathizer. He was one of the original 12. He's one of the original disciples, handpicked by Jesus. We looked carefully at Judas a few weeks ago and we described him as the model hypocrite. And he really is. Judas is the archetype of the perfect hypocrite. When Jesus informed the 12 that one of them would betray him, remember, none of them suspected it was Judas. In fact, they were more suspicious that it might be them than anyone else. And in fact, Judas was so trusted and and played the part of a disciple so well that they even made him their treasurer. And he's described by the word of God in John 12 verse 6 as a thief. They made the thief their treasurer. So trusted was he. So well did he play the part. He was the keeper of their money box. So often in, in people's lives, they, they play the role that's assigned to them by circumstances or, or by their parents or, or by their peers or, or by Christian friends or, or by whoever. They'll, they'll play the role assigned to them. And Judas played the part very well until he actually betrayed Jesus. Until it actually happened. No one around him suspected him until it happened. The other disciples were shocked. Were as shocked as anyone. It is the disturbing part of the historical narrative here. The New Testament has stories of betrayals and letdowns all over it. The Old Testament and the New Testament has stories like this. The history of the Christian church, if you study church history, it is filled with stories of Judas's. Paul and John mentioned betrayers by name in their letters in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Who, who was Demas? Was he some unbeliever from somewhere that nobody knew? He was a professing Christian. He forsook me. He loves this present world. Paul was stabbed in the back. 2 Timothy 4, 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 3 John 1, 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. These are professing Christians. These are Judases. These are not outsiders. These are members of the church. And Judas was so much the same, wasn't he? If anyone will be loyal to Christ, it would be one of the 12, wouldn't it? Surely there would be no hypocrites there. They would always be loyal to him, especially after they saw the avalanche of miracles and the profound teachings and the kindness and the compassion that Jesus showed everyone. Surely that affected them and made it so that they would be loyal to him to the bitter end, no matter what. But Jesus always knew one of them was a devil. He had told them that before. One of you is a devil. One of them was always known to Jesus as the one who would betray him, even if Judas himself didn't realize it yet. I read a little article about uh, William Tyndale this past week. I was thinking, having a memory Um, when I took church history, that he was betrayed by a close friend. I found an article about him in uh, a back issue of Christian History magazine. I read the whole story. It it almost brought me to tears to read it. William Tyndale, this guy was on the run. He was a fugitive from justice for 12 years, uh, printing the Bible, translating it into English. And he was eventually tied to a stake, strangled, and burned for doing that. This English Bible you and I have is very much the byproduct of his work. And he was betrayed by guess who? A very close, trusted friend, a guy named Henry Phillips. 
Phillips was a rogue, and he was also in a lot of legal trouble over money that he had gambled away from his, his family. And when Phillips set up William Tyndale, he, he befriended him. He knew how to talk to talk. He knew how to, sound, how to sound just like an evangelical Christian would go out with them and, and on their evangelistic work and everything. And everyone thought, man, this guy's great. He's great. He's great. Phillips set up William Tyndale to be arrested. Phillips knew exactly where the officers would be as they were walking along the side streets there in town and go around the corner. And just before they encountered the arresting officers, Phillips stops Tyndale and says, oh, I've been robbed of of my money. Uh, Well, I I was supposed to buy you a meal. Could you lend me the money? And so Tyndale just gave him everything he had in his pocket. And then in a pretense of piety, since Tyndale is the the great churchman, the great Bible translator, they come to this entrance and he says, oh, you you go first because you're the honored person. And he walks through there and right around the corner, there are those two officers ready to arrest William Tyndale, which they did. And he was martyred. He was killed by the Inquisition. Pretty remarkable. Under pious pretension, um, Phillips gets all of his money off of his person, pretends to give him the honor of going through the gate, and then he's arrested and killed. The very wicked often use pious pretense to deceive the unsuspecting. Remember what Paul, Paul told Timothy? There are those who think that godliness, godliness is a means of gain. And people will use it like that sometimes. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders for their long robes and their pretentious long prayers, etc. You know, when, when Tyndale saw the officers around the corner there, he immediately hesitated and stepped back. He knew these were people looking for him. And Phillips pointed to Tyndale and told the officers, that's the man that you want. It's sad. (laughs) It's sad stuff. But thankfully, thankfully, our faith doesn't rest in people. It doesn't rest in people. It rests in Christ alone. Psalm 133 says it's a blessed joy when people dwell together in unity and love and trust. But the only one who will really never let us down is Christ. Just remember that ominous way the Holy Spirit refers to Judas. It's purposeful. Judas, one of the 12. We already know that, don't we? We already know he's one of the 12. We've known that since the beginning of the gospel. We're 22 chapters into it. It says that because of the shock. Yes, one of Jesus' closest friends is doing this. Psalm 41.9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And I just want to warn myself and all of you, if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us. And notice the rest of verse 47. Judas, one of the 12, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. Now, who is this them? This may very well have been a really large group of people. We know from John's account that it was quite a mixed company. Judas was preceding them. He was the leader of this group. And we know that there was a detachment of Roman soldiers. A Roman cohort was with them and there were people armed with, with swords and clubs and there were also the temple police. Now, why would they have brought Roman soldiers to do this? I mean, aren't the temple police enough? Just, I want to remind you of something. The temple police aren't very reliable. You know how we know that? Because they had already been sent. They had already been sent to go get Jesus and arrest him. Remember what happened? Listen to it in John 7, 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about Jesus and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. The the temple police were sent, go get Jesus and bring him back here. 
And then here's what happens. John 7, 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? So they come back, they come back to him and Jesus is with him. And they say, why didn't you bring him? And I love their answer. They say, no man ever spoke like this, ma'am. That's all they can get out. No man ever spoke like this, ma'am. It's a remarkable thing to consider that if Jesus's true identity, if who he really was, even hit a person's heart just a little bit, they knew that he was a person to be feared and respected. And certainly no one's going to lay hands on him. All they can say is no one ever talked like him. So they know the temple police, they're already intimidated by this guy. These were the temple police sent by their superiors. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent them, go arrest them and bring them back to us. And they go to get Jesus and they hear him talking and they come back to their superiors without Jesus and they failed in their mission. And their superiors want to know, oh, he, no one ever talked like him. So the temple police aren't reliable. Roman soldiers would be needed for insurance, I guess. And John 18 verse 3 mentions a cohort of soldiers. Now, what exactly is that? A cohort at full strength consisted of, get this, 600 soldiers. That's what a cohort was. Now, it's not overly likely. A lot of commentators think it may have been a substantial portion of that whole garrison, but probably not the full 600, but it could have been a group several hundred people strong, and they're armed to the teeth. They've got swords, and the temple police are also there, and they're the ones with the clubs. It was a huge group of people, a huge group. Roman soldiers would have been readily available, especially because it was the Feast of Passover. Remember, everyone's aunts and uncles from all over the world that were Jewish, they all came to Jerusalem for, for Passover, and estimates have the, the incomers from out of town around 2 million. And during the Feast of Passover, Jewish nationalist fervor often got very high, and the Romans were very paranoid about rebellion. So there'd be a buildup of Roman soldiers, so there were plenty of them on hand if they were needed. Especially if Jesus was being labeled as some kind of a revolutionary or an insurrectionist. Yeah, sure, the Romans are going to get involved in that. They were very paranoid about rebellions and they, they made sure that one wasn't going to break out among the Jews. As we know from history, it happened many times. Now, Judas goes on to engage in probably the worst act of fake piety of all time. And he notifies the group he's leading who Jesus is by embracing and then kissing him. It's an iconic moment of wickedness in history, of phony respect, one that the world has seen as such ever since. Just remember that the one true and living God despises religious pretentiousness. He hates that. And there's a great deal of irony in the scenery here. One commentator said this. He pointed out, it's very dark. So Christ's enemies are carrying torches and lanterns to find the light of the world. They brought swords and clubs to get the Prince of Peace. Psalm 120, verse six says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war, end quote. Let us also not forget the pious pretensions of the chief priests and the the temple uh, police here. In the name of the truth, in the name of the one true God, these people were coming to murder the Son of God, murder the Messiah, prophesied in the book that they said that they loved and believed, the Old Testament Bible that they had, The one they ought to have welcomed and celebrated and loved as their savior and redeemer was the one that they hated the most. As a matter of fact, we're conspiring to murder. That was the end game. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted him dead. The group that detested the incarnation of the truth, the one who said, I am the truth, was 
those who outwardly were the most dedicated to the Bible and supposedly dedicated to the truth. And one lesson we can learn from this is the following, and I think this is borne out throughout church history over and over and over again. Once religions go apostate and become entrenched in their apostasy, there is no bringing them back. There's no bringing back the leaders of such groups. Some of their followers might be plucked from the fire by the grace of God, but very few religious leaders of apostate groups ever repent. And we've seen already in the Olivet Discourse that the most horrific judgment awaits those fake religious types. And we must recognize that such is true today as well. Those who preach and teach and defend false gospels, false doctrines, are every bit subject to the most horrifying judgments from God, as was Judas himself and the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, and lawyers of Jesus' day. Look at verse 48. Jesus says to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? A kiss then, as it is today, is a symbol of friendship, of affection. It was the signal prearranged by Judas to let the armed people behind him know which one he was. Judas had already been paid at this point. He'd already had his 30 pieces of silver, but he knew he wouldn't be allowed to keep it if they didn't actually arrest him. And Mark's gospel has Judas walk up and say, Rabbi, and Matthew records, hello, Rabbi. And one commentator said, from the response of Jesus, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the son of man? It is clear that even at this very late moment, Jesus is earnestly warning Judas. For his everlasting perdition, he has only himself to blame. Okay, let's move on to the next point. Look at verse 49 through 51. Key, key part of the passage here. When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Okay, just breaking from the, from the scripture for a moment. Apparently, none of them waited for an answer. Okay, verse 50. And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And we know from the other gospels, who was that? Peter. Verse 51, Jesus answered and said, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Okay, the sudden bravery of Jesus' disciples here has always surprised me. It's always surprised me. The Roman soldiers and temple police, and they're all armed, and these guys are fishermen. They're not soldiers. They're not warriors. The Gospel of John, I think, tells us why they were suddenly so bold. Listen to what happens in, in the Gospel of John's narration of this. In John 18, 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. The whole group did. Now by saying, I am, Jesus knocked the entire group of people there in Gethsemane to the ground, off their feet. It's important to notice that in the passage, the English translators supply the word he there as if he said, I am he. But the expression there is simply, I am. What Jesus actually says in response to them is, ego, I me, I am. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's how God in the burning bush identified himself to Moses. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He quotes the name of Yahweh from the burning bush and it knocks them down. It's an amazing thing. He, the divine title, he, he says there. He announces who he is in front of them and they can't stand up. Now, surely that 
had to embolden his disciples. They must have been thinking, all he's got to do if the battle goes wrong is say it again. Do the I am thing again. We know from the other gospels that it was Peter who attacked with a sword and, you know, he wasn't aiming at his ear. Okay. Plus, the guy was a fisherman. He was better at, at swinging fish nets than he was at swinging a sword. We know the name of the individual in John's gospel. We know it was a fellow named Malchus. And it's amazing. One of the people who recognizes Peter later on is a relative of Malchus. A relative of Malchus is the one who says to Peter, you're not one of his disciples, are you? I've always been surprised that that individual didn't say, I I know who you are. You cut off my nephew's ear. And he put it back on. You were with him. I saw you there. I have a question. Is combat part of how the kingdom of God advances? Physical combat. Is that part of how the kingdom advances? No. Never. Do we have the right to self-defense? Yes. Do we have the right to have our country defend itself against invaders with, with armies and with an air force and everything? Yes. Should we resist our government if they require us to sin against God by the laws that they enact? Should we resist them? Yes. But Peter, at this point, is still thinking of the kingdom of God as a political thing in Israel with ancient boundaries dating back to who knows when, the glory days of Israel and great armies and generals and battles like are recorded in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. He's not thinking correctly yet. Islam was a militaristic religion that did conquest not by preaching, not by persuasion, but by the sword. But the great commission that Christ has given to us is not a military conquest. It's a conquest of hearts and minds through the power of the Holy Spirit working through the preached word of God. We do conquest through persuasion, through argument, love, mercy, grace to our fellow man. J.C. Ryle said this, quote, It is much easier to fight a little for Christ than to endure hardness and go to prison and death for his sake. I mean, anyone can grab a sword and just charge into battle, right? Peter sure seemed to be just bristling with zeal here, right? I mean, it did take some courage to pull a sword out and attack a force several hundred times his size. But we know the rest of the story. How deep was that zeal really with Peter? Peter's zeal for battle was very short-lived. When Jesus was arrested and led away prisoner, Jesus went all by himself. Peter goes from charging into battle to running for his life in a matter of seconds, and then he denies three times that he even knows who he is. It's easy to have a burning, fiery zeal for a few moments, but disciplined faithfulness over the long haul to the humdrum of life and its trials and heartaches and headaches, that's a whole different issue altogether. But that's the thing that we're always aiming at. Disciplined faithfulness over the long haul. J.C. Ryle said this, The lesson before us is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to work actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far more hard than to stir about and take part in the battle. Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. Work for Christ may be done from many phony motives, from excitement, from jealousy, from party spirit, or from love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from any but one motive, and that motive is the grace of God. We have to learn to see things as God sees them, as our Lord sees them. 
We're quick to think that those who do more visible work, and I love, as Roger, as you were teaching, I thought, man, a number of illustrations are, are directly relevant to that passage in 1 Corinthians we just looked at in Sunday school. But those who, who preach and teach and write and, and they crisscross the globe and they speak everywhere, everybody thinks they're, they're God's all-star team, right? The rest of us are just regular players or bench warmers, but they're, they're the all-stars. Not necessarily. Such men are very often less esteemed by God than the unknown person who's been sick for years with chronic pain and poverty without grumbling, without complaining, and they've cultivated a robust personal worship and prayer life for the local body of Christ. It's a shame that even in the Christian church, we have our own little celebrity cult and superstars. That's very unhealthy, very unhealthy. In fact, years ago, I read a book by Kenneth Scott LaTourette on the, the history of Christian missions. And he makes the argument, he makes the point that the time period of the greatest missionary expansion of Christianity that's never been repeated in its entire history was the first three centuries after Christ. And there is not a single notable superstar evangelist in that entire group of time. Not one. They had no celebrities, no, no cult following of this guy or that guy. You see, under persecution, you didn't have fake Christians. Under persecution, you had, to be, you had to be a real Christian to be part of a church. Because if you weren't, you were going to get killed. And so their testimony to the world, it was powerful. They endured so much for the cause of Christ. And there's no comeback to that. The person who hangs in for the long haul with their church, they pray earnestly for their family, their church, their friends. They're a good listener. They actually care about people and they try to be a friend to those around them in the name of honoring Christ. That person is a favorite of heaven, even though so very few people will ever know their name. The Holy Spirit says, Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Do we think that that's a, a good thing to do, that that's that big of a deal, even though it's not seen by anybody? It's a big deal to God. Be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things. Don't grab a sword and go out and try to kill people. Associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done for selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Combat is not the way. The kingdom grows, Peter. Much of our walk with Christ is going to be an exercise in patient suffering. When Saul of Tarsus was converted, he went on to do incredible things for God, incredible things for the cause of Christ with church planting and refuting heresy and expounding the truth and defending the gospel, loving the brethren, winning people to Christ. But Jesus told Ananias the following about Paul when Ananias went to him when he had been blinded. Remember that? He told Ananias, I want you to go see this guy. And Ananias argues with Jesus. Remember, he argues with him. I'm not going to see that guy. That guy hates us. That guy kills Christian people. He's like, no, 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 no. He's a chosen vessel of mine. And he also says, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. You ever thought your calling as a Christian is a call to suffering? I mean, who, who wants to go suffer? That's why I still think someone needs to write a book. Ten reasons you don't want to follow Christ. One of the reasons is you're going to be called to suffer. And most people try to live to avoid suffering. Now we don't embrace it. Yeah, bring it on. I love to suffer. We're not you know, like that. But we're all going to suffer for the cause of Christ. I'm going to show him. I mean, Jesus told Ananias, I want you to tell him this. 
I'm going to show him how many things he's going to suffer for my sake. And Paul learned that lesson well from a, a jail cell. He wrote to the church at Philippi, Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You know, Peter's not thinking right yet. He wants to go to war. He wants to, to be a general in the Lord's army. He pulls out that sword. He tries to kill someone. But later, he learns this lesson really well. Because he wrote two letters that we have in the New Testament. Listen to, listen to the new Peter after he gets his head screwed on straight after this. 1 Peter 2.20. What credit is it if when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. He learned that lesson. 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. So can Christians be soldiers? Yes, of course. During the 16th century Reformation, the Anabaptist group said that Christians needed to withdraw entirely from the world, hold no public office, they could not serve in the military, and they weren't allowed to even defend themselves against violence at all. And Martin Luther wrote a very good book in response to them called Can Then to a Soldier Be Saved? And he said, yes, they can. Yes, they can. And the soldiers are needed. Soldiers in the gospel asked John the Baptist at one point, the last Old Testament prophet. Remember, soldiers approached John the Baptist out in the wilderness and said to him, what shall we do? And John the Baptist said, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages, he said to the soldiers. Notice John does not tell them, repent of being soldiers and lay down your swords and take up a God-honoring and glorifying line of work. He doesn't say that to them. He says, execute the duties of your office as a soldier in a God-honoring way. Be content with your wages and don't intimidate people falsely. Now, there's a sense in which we know from Scripture the military analogy is used a lot. We're all soldiers in a war. But it's a war for truth, not territory. Hear God's word, 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's what real service to Christ looks like. And Jesus immediately rebukes Peter, and he heals Malchus's ear. And notice here that the entire group falling to the ground when Jesus said, I am and then a miraculous healing right in front of them. That had no effect on anyone's hearts there, did it? None of them said, what are we doing here? Why are we, why are we trying to arrest this man? Sinful, unregenerate hearts are impervious to miracles. And indeed are impervious to the preached gospel without the sovereign new birth given from the Holy Spirit. And therefore, every time someone's saved or converted, it's not because of a superstar preacher. It's not because of great oratory skills. It's because the Holy Spirit of God is glorifying his grace. Finally, evil's hour. Look at verse 52 and 53 there. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now, Jesus's question here is really a rhetorical question. What possible reason would they have to come and get him like this? Why would they come get him like this? 
They brought possibly hundreds of armed Roman legionaries along with the temple police, all carrying swords and clubs. What did they think he was? The term lestes, that's translated as robber in this context, in this context is actually identified by the lexicons as insurrectionist. He says, basically, you guys think I'm an insurrectionist? Why are you coming at me like I'm a guerrilla or a revolutionary of some kind? Now, Peter's having just chopped off a guy's ear didn't help their case. <laughs> but Jesus, thankfully, you know, put, it back, put it back on and, and healed him. But Jesus asked him, why are you guys coming at me with swords and clubs? I've, I've been among all of you out there teaching for a very long time. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now consider with me how ridiculous this scene really is. A Roman cohort, maybe of 600 armed soldiers, temple police with their clubs, along with a bunch of other religious leaders, they're all coming at Jesus armed to the teeth. Why? What, what in the world had Jesus been up to? What, what terrible things would cause this sort of response to arrest him? Well, let's go over some of the things that Jesus has been up to. <clears throat> Mark 139. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Maybe it was that. Mark 10, 13. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them and blessed them. Maybe that's why they thought they needed clubs and swords and hundreds of people. Matthew 4, 23, when Jesus went about all Galilee, Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people, then his fame went throughout all Syria and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, healing people of all those conditions. Maybe that's why they... Needed to be armed. You know, Jesus had no interest in the people's idea of kingship. At one point in John's gospel, the the 5,000 that he just fed, they all want to come and make him king by force. And it says in John 6, 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. The only time one of his disciples ever rose up and engaged in violence was right here. Jesus stopped him immediately and then undid the violence that was just committed. He told Peter in John 18, 11, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Remember one place the disciples went and they weren't given the red carpet. They weren't welcomed. Remember what they asked? Shall we call down fire to incinerate them all? And he's just like, I didn't come into the world to destroy people, but to save them. You guys have no idea what I'm doing here. But eventually they would. Praise God, they would. When interrogated by Pilate about the nature of his kingdom, Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. After his death, burial, and resurrection, Peter would stand up and preach the great first Christian sermon there in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. He would stand up and say, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Miracles, wonders, profound preaching and teaching, healing the sick, casting out demons, bearing witness to the truth, loving children, embracing people, healing leprosy. 
and loving people in the name of the one true God. That's what he's been up to for years. And what is their response? He must die. It doesn't make any sense. It's totally irrational. That's why Jesus asked them, why are you guys, you guys are coming at me with swords and clubs? What exactly have I been doing that would make you think you need swords and clubs? Healing people, loving people, casting out demons, ridding this whole region of disease. Amazing. The world's continued rejection of the love of God in Christ, as well as the world's response to him when he was here. It's such a powerful testimony to human sinfulness, isn't it? Even in this dark moment where Jesus was finally turned over to his enemies, the way Jesus says this is almost announcing to them, God is giving you permission to do this. You see the last part of verse 53 again? But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. And yet all of it was predestined by the triune God, planned in every last detail before the foundation of the world to bring about the glorious redemption of Christ's church from sin and to give them eternal life. Later after Christ's resurrection and then the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles with great power, Peter would preach that great sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. I just read the first part to you. Then he goes on to say, Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He tells them what you did was in accordance with what God predestined to happen. Later, the whole early church would gather in prayer. The whole early church, this large group of people that were followers of Jesus Christ, believed the gospel, and they prayed like this in Acts 4.27, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined before to be done. Do people pray like that anymore? When bad things happen, do you ever... Praise the Lord for predestining this to happen. We know you have a good purpose for this. You have a good purpose for that. Nothing surprises God. We must recover this grander vision of God that he is at work even in the darkest of outward circumstances. Now, I know how hard it is to do that, but we must. Darkness, when it seems to overtake the light, just remember it only does so for a season. I love how Jesus puts that. This is your hour. You guys got... An hour. I know it's a figure of speech, but in a sense, it's also true. It actually shouldn't even be said as an hour. What, what is the short span of human history in comparison to eternity? It's not an hour. Kingdom of God transcends our personal struggles in life, our personal times of darkness, humiliation, sadness, and trial. It also transcends seasons of great joy and peace and happiness. This darkness that fell upon Jesus was the time when our salvation, our eternal life was secured on the cross. Justice was satisfied once and for all. And the work was finished, paid in full. But without that darkness, without that hour of darkness given to the devil and to his agents, we would have no light and we would have no promise of salvation from our sins. This morning we've looked through this passage Pure wickedness illustrated. No, no wickedness is greater than that wickedness which is perpetrated under a religious guise. Hello, rabbi, and then a kiss from Judas. And then what real service to Christ looks like. It's not charging into battle to literally kill all of God's enemies. Our battle is not fought with physical weapons, but it's a spiritual war for truth. We pray and we trust God and we speak the words of the gospel. And lastly, we saw evil's hour. If Jesus doesn't endure the most terrible darkness imaginable, we will have no light. 
Like Job, like Jesus, and like us who know Jesus, darkness cannot overshadow us without divine permission and without a good and holy purpose. Next week, we're going to look at Peter's triple denial. It's a passage that everyone's familiar with, and it's very rich, as, as we will see together. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your plan that we see executed here in the passage, that wickedness and the power of darkness had its hour with Christ to do what you had predestined them to do according to their own desires, their own nature. They brought about the death of Jesus. And we bless your holy name for those that repent and believe in him alone, their redemption. Be with us on the rest of this Sabbath day. Help us to glorify your name and to always be thankful for the precious, perfect work of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.